Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. With M. Tapper and Uncle Eli, El Emanuel heads north on Orangeman's Day, fishes Western Brook, and watches Hib repair an airplane. What fun it was cruising down shore with M. and Eli. It was well into summer before I remembered that I owed my old friend Uncle Eli a drive down the coast. Oh, yes, he said, that cruise we were talking about. The proper day to start would be Tuesday, Orangeman's Day. We could leave early so as to get to Sally's Cove for the parade in the time, and then we could go on to wherever we feels like it. I can see that if you're going on a cruise, you intend to be the skipper, I said. You can be the engineer, and we'll take M. Tapper for ballast, he grinned. The day dawned cool and bright. Emmy and I stowed our gear in the car, rods, boots, and fishing boxes, then sleeping bags with extra socks and toothbrushes rolled inside, a grub box, and a kettle. The spare tire was mended and pumped up by hand. Eli had the car hoiled and put to rights, and we backed onto the ferry just about noon. We crossed the bay and bowled over the narrow road, filled with a wonderful holiday spirit, a joyous exuberance, and delicious abandon, expecting nothing, yet anticipating wonders. Eli marveled at how swiftly we moved from one hilltop to another, distances he remembered in a day's march. We dashed through Rocky Harbor, heads down, so that no one would recognize us, and later accused me of favoritism. We drove over rocks and ruts, through dense woods, to the bridge over Baker's Brook. Then we came to Sally's Cove unexpectedly. We could have sworn it was miles further, but the village was empty. Doors were shut, gates tied with rope, and the road was deserted. We stopped at Aunt Polly's house to leave in her back kitchen a ten-pound rib roast. She'd expressed the wish for a bit of fresh when I last visited. And then we drove slowly northward, for, as Eli remarked, Well, they can't be far, for sure, they can't be hid away. And sure enough, after driving a few miles along the road skirting the shore, we saw ahead the bright colors of the villagers' best clothes on a grassy headland. Missing the trail in our excitement, we plunged through the tuck bush and caught up with them. Aunt Polly took both my hands in hers as her John waved a bottle from his vantage on a high rock. Friends and relatives surrounded Emmy, and Eli surveyed the scene. Where's the horse? he yelled suddenly. Horse? What horse? You know, it's the white one. They looked at him open-mouthed. Mean to say you have orangemen stay without a white horse? How's King William going to get across the water then? And when he saw nobody understood a word, he took a deep breath and bellowed out, Well, why do you have Orangeman's Day anyway? They were silent for a moment, and then somebody said meekly, Well, tis a holiday, we always have a time out here. Seeing that nobody seemed to know the answer, Eli told them, Tis to celebrate the victory of King William of Orange, a Protestant, who beat the Catholic King James at the Battle of the Boyne. Poor Eli, not only was he out of a parade, but his sacred ceremony was reduced to a holiday time. Emmy soothed him. It's just like Guy Fox. Everyone has a bonfire, but who remembers why anymore? Didn't the same thing at all? Eli shook his head. 
We tried to cheer him up, but things went from bad to worse. The old rake John was now drunk as an owl. Poor Aunt Polly looked like a sad little sparrow, her black dress speckled with dust as she sat in the blazing sun. Clearly her mind was not with us, despite her chatter. Ah, they won't go home till all hours, he muttered, obviously yearning for her cool, peaceful kitchen. We'll go, Emmy told her. We'll drive you home and you can get us a mug up. Aunt Polly's face lit up. My, that would be nice, but, but what about John and Eli? Ah, you leave them to me, she said. Now you two get along to the car and we'll be with you in a jiffy. Now be it to Emmy's eternal credit that she persuaded the disgusted Eli to pilot the weaving, protesting John to the car, though it took her half an hour to do so. She settled John into the back seat with Eli, pushing his long legs in after him, and Polly said to him, Now you hold your tongue till I get you home. Em climbed in next to Aunt Polly on the front seat, put her arm around the old lady's shoulder and whispered, I promised him I'd play crib with him, so he'll be all right. We'll fix everything and have a nice long visit with you. To which Aunt Polly replied, That's good. I'll pick up some wood chips soon as we gets home, and I have to kettle boil in no time. I always say water boiled with chips makes the best tea. Luckily, there was nothing wrong with John that cribbage and black tea couldn't mend. While he and Eli banged the cards on one end of the kitchen table, Em and I sat tea on the other, directed by Aunt Polly, who sat in the rocker and from time to time exclaimed about the wonderful feed of fresh we would have tomorrow. As we washed the dishes, the sun sank low. Emmy whispered, I can't stand being inside much longer. Let's ditch Eli and sleep out. She raised her voice. Aunt Polly, as you've only got one spare room and Eli's the oldest, we'll let him have it tonight. Ah, you're not going over to Bill's, are you? John accused. We are not, Em said indignantly. I knows you, you're going on a bender, and I don't suppose you intend to go to bed at all. Got a bottle stowed somewhere away, I dare say. Come back in the morning, mind you, Eli ordered as we went out the back door. I love them, Emmy said after a deep breath, but before God I can stand only so much indoors. So we left the village. Way off to our right was Westernbrook Gorge, blue and purple, mysterious and vastly distant. To our left the sun was a copper platter, streaked across the center with a thick black cloud, and then it sank to a sliver on the water's edge. We reached the foreshore, a crescent mile of pure white sand sloping up to the banks, blue with wild iris. Five ponies galloped down the road before us and disappeared into the forest. We parked the car, pulled out our sleeping bags, kettle and grub bag, and descended the bank past the battered shack empty except at lobstering time. We took off our shoes and walked barefoot along the hard sand at the water's edge, where at each step water bubbled up between our toes. We picked up sand dollars and curved shells and gathered driftwood for a fire. We came to the edge of the crescentic beach a few yards from Western Brook, and there we rested. We made our fire ready for lighting, filled a kettle from the brook, and naked hurled ourselves into the unrippled sea, as cold as glacier runoff. Chilled, we emerged, lit the fire, and ran on the beach till our kettle boiled, and we brewed our nightcap of tea. We crawled into our bags and burrowed into the sun-warmed sand. The afterglow of sunset faded. There was no moon, but in the starlight of that bright northern night, we could see the wavelets break, in foam glittering with phosphorescence. 
water burning, we used to say as children, when we lifted our oars gently so that perfect droplets of fire would drip into the sea. M said it was sinful to close our eyes against such beauty, but we did, only to wake a few hours later with the sun on the verge of rising, and five ponies poised on the bank above us, a frieze of black against the pale green sky. Since our grub bag held little to stay our ravenous hunger, and the trout had long since run upstream from our reach, we went back to the village. Smoke was rising from the kitchen chimneys, from Aunt Polly's as well, so we thought we could safely enter. Aunt Polly laid her finger to her lips and rolled her eyes towards the bedroom off the kitchen where Eli was sleeping. But our entrance must have woken him, for after a series of fumbling noises, he appeared with a, Good morning! Polly raised her voice. Now, John, you get up too, now! When there was no answering sound, she grabbed the broom and hit the ceiling with a resounding whack. John's feet hit the floor, and presently, bleary-eyed, he appeared, and immediately disappeared into the back kitchen. Having washed in cold water, he came back with vision considerably sharpened. "'Ah, sand in your air!' he leered at Emmy. "'I know,' she answered calmly. "'We slept up by Western Book. "'My God, how foolish is you, too!' Later, when we told him we were going to walk across the mesh to the gorge just for fun, he said, "'I'd rather go to hell for a pastime.' You don't need to go that far, not today anyhow, Eli said mildly. We'll go and get a few halibut. I hear tell they're eating the rocks. Well, in that case, Aunt Polly said, I'll make some sandwiches for the girls and you can forage for yourselves. Well, I'll be ready then for a good scoff of fresh. She chanted the menu. Peas from John's garden, cabbage greens from Pete, and I dare say a carrot or two if I can find them. Jam and cream for dessert, sang Emmy. Yes, my maid. Bake apples from Mark and cream from Betty's cow. Now, mind you, you're all here by six, no matter what. After breakfast, we dispersed. Take our rods? I asked Em. Sure. Returning to Westonbrook, we walked along the river bank, occasionally cutting across the springy moss to circumvent a bend. We cast hopefully in many pools without seeing a fish, and finally sat to rest in the undergrowth. Black ducks with metallic sheen on their wings and with yellow bills, green-winged teal and lovely golden eye called locally pie ducks. M said that they go to salt water when the rivers and ponds freeze over. And look, there's a moose bed over there, see? The moss was packed solidly and the small trees around it were broken. We can't be far, Emmy added, because that's a new bed. Looks as if he slept in it last night. But we didn't see him, for the wind sprang up and blew across the mesh, carrying our scent to wary animals. So we walked again past wide pools like lakes, narrow riffles, deep holes, and shallow runs in the river that wound through the flat country from the awesome gorge to the sea. We walked until midday, and having come to a flat-topped boulder around which the river swirled, we rested and ate our lunch. And then we fished, standing knee-deep in the river. Wishing to change flies, I waded back to the rock for my fishing jacket. I looked for it, but there it was gone. I searched all around the boulder, scanned the visible portion of the river, but I found nothing. Calling to Emmy for help, we beat the tuck bush in a quarter-mile circle. But never again did we see my beautiful tattered jacket, the one with the pair of falsies neatly pinned on the outside to hold my dry and wet flies. I've always wondered if the jacket had floated away to be picked up by some bemused man fishing downriver from us that day. 
We walked on, but the closer we got to the gorge, the further away it appeared, and we were forced to abandon our project and turn homeward. Exhausted and hungry, we had only time to wash before we were hustled to table by proud Aunt Polly for a meal that was everything she promised, and more. It ended with an unexpected round of John's raspberry wine, called cordial, in deference to the usually teetotal Eli, who drank rather a lot of it. Perhaps that was why we found it easy to persuade him to our plan of driving on that evening to Portland Creek, known for its hospitality to strangers. We would be able to choose a bed from any one of the twenty houses in the village, and then go fishing next day. By the time we arrived in Portland Creek, it was dark, or, or at least as dark as it ever gets in July. Shadowy houses loomed on the horizon, and shadowy cattle slept in dark hammocks on the road. We left the car and walked through the lane which passes for the main road, and after a little Eli said, They must be all dead, and we realized that every house was in darkness, with not even the glimmer of a single lamp. How queer, I said. I wonder where they are. M whispered, Stop. Listen. And in the quiet we could hear the faint but 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 of a gasoline engine. Ah, I know, she exclaimed. They're all at the traveling movies. That's where they are. The schoolhouse, when we reached it, was dark too, but under a tree a portable generator turned over merrily. We could imagine the little building jammed to the doors with people transported to the more glamorous worlds, sweating excitedly in the heat of the airtight building. Ah, wouldn't it be grand to pull a switch? Eli giggled. Don't you offer dare, said Emmy, pulling him from temptation's way to the beach, where we sat and watched the waves silver in the starlight. Presently the movie ended, and people streamed out to the road. We went to Matthew's house, where we had tea and homemade bread and gossip, and where Eli made his offering of a gigantic slab off a fifty-pound halibut he'd boated that morning, while Emmy and I were fishing. Matthew then suggested, Hey, let's go up to Ibs. He's just home from guiding. Of course it isn't too late. They never goes to bed down there when Ibs home. We found Hib in his shed, seated at a rickety lamp-lit table, littered with tiny nuts, bolts, screws, and delicate pieces of machinery. He was laboriously fitting pieces together, and having greeted us laconically, he went on with his task. Feller's airplane came down in the pond, he began. I seen him when he fled over Portland Point, Matthew interrupted. He came down right after. Something wrong with his magneto and nobody to fix it, so I'm getting it to rights. But, Hib, you don't know anything about airplanes, I protested. A magneto's a magneto, and many's the one I fixed in me boat, because if I didn't, I'd drown. And I knows how to get this to work, because I've already found a trouble. Ah, but do they know you know, Emmy asked. He laughed. What do you do now? Cause I said they'd go up with the feller in the first flight, and we'd fly right over the hills and back, and that satisfied them. And the next morning, bright and early, the plane took off with Hib, a confident passenger, landing safely half an hour later, with Hib looking at us smugly. Eager for more adventures, Eli, M, and I continued our way north that glorious morning. But that is another story. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. 
Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.